Salvo was brought up in a southern Italian village near Naples um, in the 1920s and 1930s. It was a very poor district um, and he lived with seven siblings, his parents and his grandparents, in a one-roomed apartment. At the age of 14, he left school um, and he joined the Italian army and he joined, in fact, an organization called the Carbonieri, which is actually the police in the army. And he served as a police officer. He saw work uh, in Rome and also in North Africa. And then when the Second World War broke out, he was sent to a little village called Torrempantina in just north of Rome. One Sunday, he was on duty. He had just come from church. And he was walking out. It was the 23rd of September, 1943. And he saw a group of SS soldiers marching menacingly towards him. He greeted them, but the SS officer struck him. The SS officer informed Salvo that one of his own soldiers had been killed in an explosion nearby the village, and he suspected that the Italian resistance were to blame for this. And so he issued Salvo an ultimatum. He said, you find this person, these people, and he said that we've rounded up 22 men in the village, and if you don't find the person, we're going to shoot them. Salvo went about trying to find who had done it and, of course, couldn't find them. And the occasion came when the SS um, troops then got the 22 men to start to dig their graves. And Salvo was consoling them. And as it came towards the end, when they were about to stand above their graves and be shot, Salvo turned around to the officer and said, it was me. I did it. No one else is to blame. None of these men are to blame. I did it. Amazingly, the SS men let the 22 go, and that evening they put him up against a wall and they shot him. Only one of those 22 men stayed to watch. Now, after the war, Salvo's actions became widely known. He was posthumously, posthumously awarded the Gold Medal of Military Valour, which is Italy's highest medal. And amazingly, in many, many streets in Italy are named after him today. In the face of death, Salvo was more concerned for the lives of those 22 men than he was for himself. The Bible says, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Today, we are continuing our seven-week journey, the Lenten series called New Life in Dying Breath, as we consider the implications of Jesus' last words as he hung on the cross. In each of these last seven words, we can learn something more about Jesus, about who he was, and about what it means for us to be a disciple of Christ. 
I think the question that is raised certainly for me and maybe for all of us during the series is this. How close am I living to the cross? Two weeks ago, Howard preached here on Father, Forgive Them. And last week, Kath Bremner spoke on Today You'll Be With Me in Paradise. Today, the message are on those words where Jesus turned to his mother and said, Woman, here is your son. And then he turned to John, the disciple who was there with them, saying, here is your mother. Samuel Johnson said this. He was a great philosopher and an intellect of the 18th century. He said, depend upon it, sir. When a man knows he's about to be hanged in two weeks, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. If there was ever a moment that we would expect a person to think of themselves... It would be probably at the hour of their death. The awareness of the end of this life and the wonder of what lies behind the curtain would rid the mind of any earthly anxious thoughts, especially in the throes of death and especially if it's painful. One's immediate needs would be paramount. You know, there's been no more unjust or painful death than that of Jesus Christ on the cross. It was barbaric beyond belief. Yet Jesus, hanging on the cross and naked to the world, took time to think about other people. He thought of his mother and the disciple John. He makes provision for his mother and he gives John a great responsibility. You know, though Jesus was the Son of God, we see here his humanity in all its glory. The humanity of love and care for family and friends. And this is seen in two ways. Firstly, the love and care of a son, or you could say a daughter, in respect for their mother or parent. We must never forget that Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully human. This is the great mystery and the wonder of the incarnation, that the infinite, glorious, all-powerful and eternal God could come to live on earth as a complete human being and experience life just as we know it, with all its joys and sorrows, with all its... um, It's uh, ecstasy and suffering with all its temptations and victories. Jesus experienced that as a human. The only difference is he never sinned. He got tired. He hungered. He thirsted. He got angry. He got frustrated. And he probably stubbed his toe or hit his hand with the hammer in the carpenter's shop. I wonder what he said. He also experienced living in a family with all its joys and struggles, its upsets, and its extremely interesting relationships. Now, as the oldest son, and most likely with his earthly father, Joseph, did, he had the responsibility of caring for his mother. Just like Ruth took upon herself that responsibility, that compassionate sense of care towards her mother-in-law, Naomi. Jesus knew about his mother's love. 
think about this for a moment. His mother had borne him in adversity. She had mothered him as a refugee in Egypt. And she had woven clothes for him as a young boy and as a man. There is a suggestion with the reference to the um, clothing and the undergarments that the seamless undergarment that Jesus had been wearing, which the soldiers was dicing for, were in fact woven by his mother. This was a customary practice in the Middle East. In fact, Charles Swindoll says this, his outer garments, his robes and cloaks, were of no real value to him. But when the soldiers touched his inner tunic, they touched something very close to the heart of Jesus, the garment made by his mother. Here is the intimacy of a son and a mother, the intimacy of earthly human relationships experienced by Jesus. But isn't it interesting? Jesus did not commit his mother to any of his brothers or sisters. We learn in the scriptures that uh, Jesus had at least four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Not Judas Iscariot, it's another common name. And he also had some sisters. So why didn't he say to John, John, please would you take my mother to my next brother down, James, to look after? Why didn't he say that? The answer we presume is that at that point, Jesus' siblings were not following Christ. They did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, we learn in John chapter 7, verse 2 to 10, that Jesus' siblings did not believe in him. This is more than just sibling rivalry. Most likely, Jesus' brothers knew he was an extraordinarily special young boy. Just imagine living with a brother who never disobeyed his parents or did anything wrong. Annabella, is that like Daniel? Never disobeys his parents, never does anything wrong. It must be really hard to live with Daniel. But Jesus was like that as a son. Also, imagine the jealousy of the brothers, particularly seeing the great crowds of people following Jesus. Jesus puts another slant on it for us, and it's as well to learn this, and it's this. He said, do not think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I've come to bring trouble, not peace. I've come to turn sons against their fathers, daughters against their mothers, and daughters-in-law against their mothers-in-law. Your worst enemies will be in your own family. If you love your father or mother or even your sons and daughters more than me, you're not fit to be my disciple. And then he went on to say, and unless you're willing to take up your cross and follow me, you're not fit to be my disciple. In other words, the gospel and believing in Jesus can and does separate families. Not that we'd want that, but it does. In addition, once when Jesus was told that his mother and brothers were outside waiting for him as he was teaching in a house, he said this. He said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father 
in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. So Jesus is really saying here, I think, mum, in fact, he calls her woman, which suggests his messianic nature at that particular point. You've followed me and you've believed in who I am, mum. Please take John, not James or Joseph or Simon or Judas, who haven't really followed us. Please take him to be a new son to you. Now, that is shocking in our culture. If you think of it, um, in our own culture of somebody else taking the place of a family member. But the distinction is even more real, perhaps, when we consider the consequences of believing in Jesus. Those people who believe in Jesus will be with Jesus in eternal life forever. And those who haven't bowed the knee to Christ and accepted him as their Lord and the forgiver of their sins and saviour will not. We are blood relatives of Jesus. He shed his blood for us. Now, I'm not saying that we should not care for our families. I'm not saying that at all, because Paul reminds his readers, he says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. But what I am saying is that Jesus wants us to know that our bond in Christ is a completely unbreakable bond. So look around you. Here are your eternal brothers and sisters. What do you think? Have a look around. These are your family members. Oh, there we are. That's it, Rosalie. Grab them. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Thankfully, I have to say that the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection changed his brothers' and sisters' minds. In Acts chapter 1.14, following the ascension of Jesus, we read that Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers, continued daily together in prayer before the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, James later became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he's the one that wrote the book of James at the back of the Bible. That's Jesus' brother. So Jesus really cared for his mum. He is an example to us of a loving, caring son that honoured his mother by providing for her a man who had closely walked with him and the disciples. The second thing it teaches us is a disciple's responsibility. You know, when Jesus was taken into custody, we read this. All the disciples, all of them, deserted him. One would have thought that their love for him would have weathered any type of storm, including his capture, imprisonment, and death. In fact, Peter, a few chapters earlier, says this to Jesus. He said, I'm going to go and die with you, Jesus. But at the crunch time, Peter deserted him like the other disciples. Was it shame? Was it offense? What was it? Was it fear for their own lives? When we are confronted 
every day in our own situations to stand up for Jesus in public, are we ashamed? Are we offended? Are we fearful about what others might think of us? But John returned to the cross. He returned to the scene where his saviour was being crucified. He was the only disciple there with the four women. John is there. You know, the cross is a place of selfless devotion. Here on the center cross, as someone written, the purpose of the ages would be consummated. The cross is the hub into which the spokes of God's purposes would come together in a beautiful display of pure love and justice, the glory of God. I find it most interesting that Jesus did not rebuke John at that point. He didn't criticize him for deserting him. Rather, he gave him a tremendous responsibility. The honor of caring for Jesus' mother. A new responsibility. I'm sure it was one that enabled John to call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved because he gave them this responsibility to look after his mother. When we encounter Christ, when we encounter Jesus ourselves in our lives, he always gives us a responsibility. To receive a responsibility from Jesus is the most important thing in life because it's from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Whatever failures or messes we have made in our lives, God is far more interested in our present and in our future. Our past can be wiped away just like that through confession and faith. In fact, it was John who wrote these words that we hear most Sunday. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I found personally that the responsibilities that Jesus gives us, he makes clear as we faithfully read God's word and pray and listen. And then put it into practice. That's the thing. Do you know that John... The historians say looked after Mary for at least another 11 years in his house in Jerusalem. And after she passed away, he then headed off on his mission trip and ended up in Ephesus and became the leader of the church in Ephesus that Paul had planted. In conclusion, how many of us would have stood near the cross on that day? How close would we be? Nearby? Hanging back? Or perhaps hiding behind a wall just in case someone recognized us? Are we proud to be associated with Jesus? I don't mean a kind of a over-the-top pride. I mean, are we, do we feel a, a certain proudness of being associated with this man, Jesus? 
would we have taken care of Mary? It seems in this day and age, with so many fractured families, we all have opportunities to minister to people who need the kind of love and support that Mary would have needed. Jesus' groans from the cross must reach all those who minister in this present age to broken and dislocated families. You know, some have discovered too that the spiritual bonds are even stronger than natural bonds in forming relationships. And as I close, I just want to mention three little things that have happened in our fellowship recently. Um, Because we are called to be brothers and sisters to one another. If we are related to Jesus, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. I remember last year, and you remember dear Elizabeth and Bill Shanks, and uh, their ministry for here for many years, and how there were four women in particular who showed great compassion and endurance and commitment to walk with this couple, and particularly Elizabeth, during that year when her daughter could not come over from Perth because of COVID. You know, you would say, Jesus would say, here is your sister. I think also of a lady in our fellowship um, that lives in our neighbourhood, in fact, and uh, she has formed a relationship with a young couple. Um, She's English and her parents are overseas and he's in New Zealand and uh, this woman has been going across to their house because she has been pregnant and she's had twins. And for over a year and a half, almost two years now, she's befriended this couple and she goes and she collects their washing and brings it home and washes it for them and goes around and visits the family. It's become like a mother, really, to her. And I also want to just commend the congregation for those who responded to the need of a lady in our church who lost her car recently. The outpouring of um, generosity towards her has been totally outstanding and given this woman a fresh opportunity um, to get a motor car, to get back on the road so she can, um, she can take her family where they need to go. These are the sorts of things, and I'm sure you know other stories as well. So, woman, behold your son, and to the disciple, behold your mother. This is a clarion call by Jesus to love one another, not just in word, but in deed. I think it's when we take time to understand and to receive the love of God when we look at the cross that we are able to respond, hopefully, as Jesus calls us to reach out in loving, sacrificial service. Amen. I just